Almost exactly five years ago, in mid-May of 2017, Amber received some news that shocked her. There is a girl on 23andMe, the DNA test we did. Okay. Um, and genetically, she's my half-sister. Amber learned that she was given life because of an anonymous sperm donation. She learned that the father she had grown up with for 30 years wasn't related to her by blood. She was distraught and confused. And she said to herself, You need to go home. The morning after her discovery, Amber hopped in her car and drove three hours north of New York to Albany. She met her dad in a large park. All around them, flowers were in full bloom. It was Mother's Day weekend, you know, Washington Square Park in Albany, they have this big tulip festival, so it was, like, absolutely beautiful. There were tulips everywhere. And it just felt weird to just be in this very familiar, very beautiful place and just having, like, the weirdest conversation ever with my dad. Amber and her dad sat side by side on a park bench in Albany, a city that had been settled by the Dutch back in the 1600s. They were surrounded by 100,000 tulips, the national flower of the Netherlands, and a symbol of Dutch pride. When I was in college, I studied abroad in the Netherlands, and part of my decision to do that was my dad's family was Dutch. Like her dad, Amber had always been proud of her Dutch heritage. So I got this tattoo, um, which has a Dutch lion, which is on all their kind of like sports uniforms and like some of their flags and like the royal crest stuff. According to your 23andMe results, are you Dutch? No, (laughs) I am not. On that beautiful spring day in the park, amid this sea of red, pink, and yellow flowers, alongside the daughter he raised, Amber's father. He just was like so beside himself and so convinced in his mind that he was going to lose me. And he was just really grieving that. Like, in the same way I was, like grieving what I thought our relationship was. He really believed that I was his biological child. So he's also losing that connection. The shock of this revelation was profound for both of them. But Amber says her father was carrying a particular burden, one that he may have been carrying for decades. I think in in the case of my family, there was definitely a lot of shame. This idea of shame is something I've thought about a lot since Amber told me her story nearly five years ago. It's something I think about every time I hear that phone call with her parents. Specifically, this moment. I was just, I was so concerned, like, well, what do you guys think of me? Though I can't ask Amber's dad what he meant by this because he declined to speak with me, This statement feels, maybe, like a slip of the mask. It's clear that he's concerned that Amber may reject him 
because he's not her biological father. But to me, it seems that there may be something else at play when he says, what are you going to think of me? Maybe he's embarrassed or feeling ashamed that he didn't father Amber. I don't know what Amber's dad felt in that moment, but if it was shame, he's hardly alone. When you have a medical professional tell you, bury this, don't think about it, you know, how much, how much can you blame him? And this is, this is the thing I say. I really don't blame donors. I don't blame recipients. I don't blame, you know, the parents. I blame the industry. There's an industry that has created this necessary secrecy, and we see that changing now. Through all my reporting over the years, I've seen how the baby business used shame and secrecy as tools. For decades, the industry hid people's true origins and treated donor conception as a secret that ought to be buried away forever. These tools were developed to protect certain notions of how our society should function, with perfect nuclear families and strict ideas of masculinity and what constitutes manhood. But today, DNA kits like 23andMe are exposing the secrets of the past. We can't protect people from shame. But as we look into the future of the industry, instead of asking, how can we grapple with these secrets? Perhaps the more important question is, why did they exist in the first place? Historically, there is an assumption that if you are a man and you are infertile, you must be humiliated. You know, the industry really capitalized on like those feelings of like shame and inadequacy from men that couldn't conceive. What is my purpose as a husband, as, as a male? What is the point of me? You know, why am I here? This is not normal. From Sony Music Entertainment and three Uncanny Four productions, this is Biohacked Family Secrets. I'm TJ Raphael. Today, for our season finale, breaking free from the shackles of shame in fertility medicine. That's next. Stick around. How did you two meet? We were both working there as lifeguards while studying. That's just how we started talking through um, checking the chemicals in the water, checking the safety of the pool environment. It was 2002, and Carrie and John were just a couple of teenagers working a summer job at their community pool in the UK. And they knew pretty quickly there was something special between them. There was this, we called it an activity room where kids would book their birthday parties for bouncy castles and stuff like that. And me and Carrie were lying on the floor, um, probably around a foot apart from each other. And she just did something with my hair. And I just knew then that was it forever. I do remember that moment, John, actually. I do remember the activity room was setting up or taking down a bouncy castle party. Um, there's just like four members of staff there. And I, I do remember twiddling with your hair. <laughs> Soon, 
they started spending more time together. And a few years later, they made it official. 2006 is when we got our first um, place together. And then I graduated in 2008 and we got married about a month after that. John and Carrie, by the way, are not their real names. We've changed them to protect their privacy. But their story is a familiar one. After they got married young, the two enjoyed newlywed life. They'd have friends over to their flat for dinner parties and indulge in laughter, conversation, and cocktails. And while kids weren't on their radar at the time, Carrie did notice something strange. I remember being slightly suspicious that we hadn't accidentally got pregnant (laughs) because there were some times when, I don't know, drunken nights or, you know, just some foolish moments where I thought, oh, probably shouldn't have done that. Um, But then nothing ever happened. So we never um, got pregnant, did we? Initially, this was a relief. Like, whew, dodged any surprises there. But... After a few years, John and Carrie stopped using protection by choice. They weren't actively trying to get pregnant, but they were open to it, especially because they knew they always wanted kids. And then one night, Carrie's suspicions came into focus when a friend made a passing comment at a dinner party. She was like, oh, so you're trying for a family. I was like, oh, well, we're not trying for a family, but we're not preventing for a family. And she went, so technically you've been trying. I was like, oh, not really. It's just, are you not pregnant yet? And I was like, well, no. And it was at that moment over a dinner with a couple, another couple of friends that we thought, oh, yeah, it's, it's not happened for us. For about four years, John and Carrie weren't trying for a baby, but they also weren't doing anything to stop a pregnancy either. Why hadn't they conceived up until this point? From that meal, I remember thinking, actually, do you know, we we really should take a bit of charge of our fertility here. So I remember suddenly becoming a bit more in tune to what was happening to my body. Carrie and John had always wanted a family. So when they realized they weren't having any luck, they decided to take control over what was happening in their bedroom. They started seeing a fertility specialist. Their lives became dominated by doctor's appointments and scheduled intimacy. This is ovulation dates. This is the window of opportunity. There's no romance involved. You're a bit like, oh no, there's too much structure to this. There's no, no spontaneity or anything else like that. As they continued to try and get pregnant, physicians started to zero in on Carrie. Did at that point feel like they were treating the individual not us as a couple? Doctors wanted to know, what was wrong with her? Why couldn't she get pregnant? She must be the problem here, right? And this is how things went for over a year. Probably after around about 18 months, we went to an appointment together. And it was almost like an off-the-cuff comment from me. like let's just rule me out. Let's just get a test. So the GP were like, yeah, okay, let, let, let's get it done. So we kind of, we, we booked in the test, got the results back. And those results showed John had a low sperm count. So we repeated the test and I got the phone call and this time they, they, they called me in and they just said, 
it's come back slightly lower than what it was before. A lot of people think infertility is a women's issue, that men can simply have children easily, frequently, and forever. But that's not true. Around the world, men are found to be solely responsible for 30% of infertility cases, and male factor infertility contributes to half of all cases on the whole. But male factor infertility, which can lead a heterosexual couple to use a sperm donor if other treatments fail, hasn't been studied very much. It's something John felt deeply when he got his results back. There was very little out there. Male factor infertility research is probably about 25 years behind female factor infertility. The lack of information about male factor infertility is deeply ingrained in our culture. Historically, reproduction has been women's work. That's Liberty Barnes. She's a medical sociologist and ethnographer who studies the ways cultural attitudes and gender norms influence medical treatments in fertility medicine. What Carrie and John were going through was something Barnes has seen a lot throughout her research. Every woman I know has a story about herself or someone she knows where the woman went through all kinds of testing and ultrasounds and the entire time the problem was her husband and he never went in to get his sperm count done. A lot of this boils down to shame and stigma around male factor infertility. High sperm counts, being virile and able to father children, is all tied up with perceptions of what it means to be a man. And this has shaped treatment and research in dramatic ways. When we think about um, male infertility, you've got a category of medicine and you've got a category of gender and they come into conflict. In medicine, we have problems where men can't get their wives pregnant. And in gender, we have these rules that men have to be masculine and strong and capable. You know, he's a stud because he could get his wife pregnant, but we forget that some men can't get their wives pregnant. We don't really know what to make of that. We end up with a medical system that's not very well structured to address men's needs. There are a lot of presumptions about what men fear and how much information they can handle when it comes to infertility. Doctors often use sports analogies to explain things like low sperm counts to male patients. Dr. Barnes has seen this a lot in her research. They were trying to soften the blow. They were trying to um, protect these men's sense of manhood by not saying to them, you know, dude, you're infertile. (laughs) Instead, they were going through these long euphemism metaphors to get men to understand that there was a problem. And these men were not actually fully understanding how serious the problem was. This kind of communication is infantilizing. And in my opinion, does a total disservice to patients 
by keeping them in the dark about their own health and bodies. And this lack of clarity is something John and Carrie experienced. We just got told, you've got a low sperm count. We didn't get told what the count was. We didn't know what a high count was. We didn't know what a low count was. So we were just told low. So we, again, we didn't fully appreciate how, and I hate using this word, John, but I didn't, uh, we didn't fully appreciate how infertile John was at this stage. We just got told, oh, it was low. Coming up, that's when we realised that the situation that we were in was quite severe. Nobody understood. I didn't know anybody that understood my position at that point. Carrie and John begin to run out of options as John questions his identity. That's next. Stay with us. Welcome to True Spies. The podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios. Wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. I remember thinking, why us? What have we done to deserve this? After tests showed that he had a very low sperm count, it became clear that John and Carrie weren't going to be able to start a family naturally. They had to consider their options, and they didn't have many. We'd had two failed attempts at um, IVF. So we'd have to go for um, a procedure known as ICSI, which is where they um, have to select active sperm to um, manually fertilize the egg. ICSI stands for intracytoplasmic sperm injection, and the procedure is just how Carrie describes it. A fertility clinic will take a single viable sperm cell from an infertile man and manually fertilize a person's egg in the lab. It's become an increasingly popular treatment for severe cases of male factor infertility. And it's led to fewer heterosexual couples needing to use sperm donors. For John and Carrie, it worked. By the wonders of science, we were successful. We got pregnant with our, with our daughter. Carrie and John had been officially trying for almost two years, and they had done it. They were able to conceive the child they so desperately wanted. They were overjoyed. But then? During delivery, um, both our daughter and myself got sepsis. Sepsis is a severe infection caused by bacteria or other germs. 
she was just too vulnerable to fight that and, uh, and passed away. So we were then compounded with the grief of losing a daughter. John and Carrie's daughter died 16 hours after being born. We were just so happy that, that we'd become parents, even if it was for such kind of a, a, a short period of time. Carrie and John took some time to regroup after their daughter died and to consider their options. They wanted a child. And as painful as the process was, they'd learned something valuable. Carrie could carry a pregnancy to term. Their daughter? She'd give us so much hope, you know, hope to be parents. She made us parents, um, but hope to be parents again. They were determined to have another baby. So they returned to the fertility clinic for more treatment with John's sperm. And then I remember we got a phone call the next day. We were so excited to receive these phone calls. I remember we'd like wake up on the morning after we'd done the IVF treatment. We were expecting a call from the embryologist to tell us how many eggs had been fertilized. I remember being in the kitchen at the breakfast bar, um, just having a cup of tea. The phone went, put it on speakerphone, and she said there's been zero fertilization. It was horrendous, wasn't it? Just receiving that information. The the clinic actually turned round to us, and we knew we knew them really well by this point. We must have had five or six different rounds of of, of treatment with them. They said, "We're really sorry, but we just can't work with your semen anymore. Um, we're not willing to take take your money." Which, on one regard, that's that's really honest and and noble of them, but it's heartbreaking. John and Carrie had only one option left if they wanted to become parents through fertility medicine. They could try a sperm donor. It's something Carrie had been thinking about and done a bit of Googling on, but she hadn't raised it with John. They took a meeting with their clinic to discuss their options. And when the topic of sperm donation came up, Carrie said she was interested. I think that was probably the first time I felt that we that we weren't on the same page. And I think that was maybe a bit of blind naivety, um, maybe a little bit of male pride, um, maybe a little bit of disbelief because we'd had our little girl. The realization that John would ultimately not be able to father a child with Carrie, that they'd have to use a sperm donor if they wanted to move forward with a pregnancy was really challenging. All these questions come to your head is, what is my purpose as a husband, as, as a male? And then two is just as a human, sent here to, to reproduce and, and, and be the best people that we can. And I just didn't feel I was being able to do that. And when he tried to turn to family and friends in his life to seek out some guidance, not everyone was supportive. Nobody understood. I didn't know anybody that understood my position at that point. Online and even in person, there are tons of resources and support groups for women who are dealing with infertility. But that's not the case for men. I think the stigma comes from from a lack of information, ultimately, um, and a, a jump into a conclusion about it all. And men... Uh, notorious for for not speaking, you know, and actually if we did speak a lot more about stuff, these stigmas would be reduced and hopefully that's what can, can come from some of this. John wrestled with the idea of using a donor. 
He didn't know anyone in his life who had. But he received counseling from the fertility clinic and spent time with his thoughts and fears about using a donor. And ultimately, John decided he wanted to move forward. In the same way I would accept a heart or a liver transplant or a kidney transplant to save my life, I needed to accept a cell from a very generous person, a very open-minded person. John and Carrie worked with their clinic and eventually found a sperm donor. And that donor helped them build the family they wanted. Today, they have three little boys, a set of twins and another son, all under the age of five years old. And John feels like this route to parenthood saved him. I feel that 100%. If I wasn't a dad to my three wonderful boys now, I don't think we would be in the relationship that, that we're in because of our mental health would have deteriorated so much and, and perhaps driven a, a, a massive wedge between us. But I don't even know if I would be living right now because what is, what, what is the point? And if somebody had been in my position, being able to talk to me and just say, it's okay, you know, and me, and hopefully people see me with my boys and understand that it's okay, there's nothing to be ashamed of. John and Carrie are very open with their children about being donor-conceived. They tell them, we needed to borrow a seed to become your mom and dad. We've always said that we don't want our children to know of a time when they didn't know. So already just this evening, actually, when we were getting the boys ready for bed, we, we just had they just had a bath and one of our boys just asked, how did he get into my tummy? So we just take their lead and we just tell them, it's all well, you were made by a scientist, which is really exciting. And sadly, daddy's seeds didn't work. So we had to use the seeds from another man to make you. How amazing is that? You know, you were made through love, determination and science. And we completely put an amazing positive spin on it. We don't poo-poo their question or put them off. And we just drip feed the right level of information for, that's appropriate for their age. Since they live in the UK, Carrie and John's boys will have full access to identifying information about their donor when they turn 18. They also will be able to contact their half-siblings, should they be curious. So... There's 10 other families potentially out there that have used the same donor that we have. So that opens up a whole new world for, for our children. And I'm really excited for them when they get to that state. If they want that information, we're more than happy to support them to access that. It's exciting. Removing shame and eliminating stigma has been a key force in the ways John and Carrie have built their family. The more that we're, we're open about it, the more it normalizes it. For me, it was a part of the reason why we needed to be honest because we we're honest people and I would never want to fit them to ever feel like we've lied to them um, at any point. And it's a mission for John. It's why he agreed to do this interview. The only reason we've changed his name and Carrie's name is because they want to respect their children's privacy. But they do plan on letting their boys listen to this episode, should they choose to, 
when they're older. John really wants to let other people, especially other fathers, know that you can build your family with medical help, with a donor. And it doesn't have to be a secret. I want the boys to know that that's that we are so proud of our route to parenthood. Um, part of the reason why I do this is because somebody's got to talk about it. You know, it's still not very well spoken about, and you've got to start somewhere. Hearing how John and Carrie are approaching this made me think about Amber and her parents. What would it have been like for all of them if there had never been a secret? In 2022, are the days of shame and secrecy in the rearview mirror? I think there's a a larger cultural and societal opportunity to shift our thinking about what parenting means and how the fertility industry fits in the broader context of that as well. Coming up, one last interview with Amber to unpack where her movement goes and what her relationship with her family is like now. That's next. Stay with us. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then-unheard-of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. When Amber met up with her dad in the park back in 2017, they were both in a state of shock. And he was just, like, devastated. And he kept asking me, you know, can we do a paternity test? Can we do another test? And I was like, unless you're Caitlin's father, you're going to be disappointed. We're going to waste $100 on a paternity test. Like, he just still couldn't accept what had happened. And I was just like, you know, how did you not know? Amber's shock in this moment makes sense. She didn't join 23andMe looking for the truth. The truth found her. But the way Amber tells it, her father seemed equally shocked to learn that she was not his biological daughter. And that has always struck me. Why was he surprised? But in the years since this discovery, Amber has had time to reflect. My mom was going for over a year, every month, to get inseminated. And it just wasn't working. And they didn't know why, but she was going every month and it wasn't working and it wasn't working to the point that when she did finally get pregnant, she had been going for so long that 
I guess my dad had kind of lost track of it. And so when she got pregnant, she told him that she thought the baby was his. And this wasn't a far-fetched possibility. Amber's dad wasn't infertile. Her parents could have a baby, but were advised that any child they conceived naturally had a two-in-five chance of survival due to a shared genetic risk. That's why they got a donor. They wanted a healthy child. But her parents continued being intimate during her mother's fertility treatments, which muddied things. And it also opened up a possibility that this story could be true, that Amber could be their healthy miracle baby. And so when I was born healthy, my mom convinced my dad that it was just that two in five chance and that I was his and that they had just gotten lucky. Amber's mother wanted to have a baby with her husband, so she probably also convinced herself that this was the truth. And her dad didn't challenge reality. They both chose to forego a paternity test to turn a blind eye to who Amber's biological father really was. And the industry made it easier for this story to take root. It has, after all, kind of favored denial. Her doctor said, go home, sleep with your husband, have your baby, and don't tell anyone. Don't ever tell anyone. And for years, she used, when I would confront her, how could you keep this from me? She would say, the doctor told me to do it. I thought I was doing the right thing because a doctor told me to do this. But today, Amber's starting to see how and why her parents may have clung to these secrets. I've tried to come to my parents' perspective on this with empathy with forgiveness, you know, they didn't invent this industry. They were just people who wanted to have a baby. Today, things between Amber and her parents are solid. But it took some work to get there. Years ago, in the park on that beautiful spring day, Amber and her dad were struggling. But now... We became even closer because there was no, like, pretense or there was no, like, we're going to pretend everything's fine because everything had been, like, completely smashed against a wall. But it was hard for a while. I mean, my dad would just, like, have these, like, meltdowns where he would tell me he was afraid that I would never talk to him again or that I would decide that, like, I didn't want anything to do with him because he wasn't my real dad. And I was, like you know, just catastrophizing. Getting this all out into the light so there are no secrets, no moments of panic if the truth is exposed, is something John and Carrie have done. They're honest with their kids. They'll support them if they want to contact their donor or half-siblings. I was curious what Amber thought of their story, of this modern couple that chose a path to parenthood that wasn't all that different from her own mom and dad. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like they're doing all the right things, right? You know, it it should never be like, oh, I remember this conversation. It should be like, oh, this is something I've always known about myself. Over the years, I've seen Amber become more active in her calls to change the baby business 
But that doesn't mean she wants to ban donor conception. She thinks there's another way forward for both parents and the industry. When people ask me, you know, as a donor-conceived person, if I had to use a donor, what's the ideal scenario? I always say, find a donor that your kid can know. You know, they don't have to have a, a father or, or real parent relationship, but just somebody that can be in, in their orbit that they can have access to if they have questions and so they can understand themselves. I think there's a, a larger cultural and societal opportunity to shift our thinking about what parenting means and, and how the fertility industry fits in the broader context of that as well. In the nearly five years since she learned the truth about her origins, Amber has become a parent herself. Today, she and her husband have a three-year-old boy and another child on the way. I think having my son was definitely kind of a healing moment for all of us. Um, I named my son after my dad in an intentionally symbolic way, right? Um, I wanted him to understand that, like, he's his grandfather. Like, this is, this is the, you know, this connection is real. When she looks around at her own growing family, Amber isn't hiding anything. She tells her son, Well, you have your Gaga and Papa, and then there's, like, Kurt, who's, like, you know, my biological father. Kurt and Amber still keep in touch every now and again. He needed to come to New York recently, so he stopped by and met Amber's kid. Kurt was very adamant of, like, I'm not the grandfather, like, I don't like kids, which is cool. Like, he didn't sign up for that. But it's, I mean, I feel very fortunate that, you know, Kurt is someone who is, like, in my orbit, you know. He's, you know, there's a lot of donor-conceived people who don't even know who this person is or have access to them, so... I kind of feel just, like, fortunate that, like, he's kind of just, like, peripheral. Amber and her half-sister remain close. They talk all the time and get together when they can. Amber's son has met his aunt, Caitlin, and his cousin, Caitlin's son, And one day, Amber plans to tell her kids that mommy has a whole lot of other brothers and sisters out there. One of the last times I interviewed Amber, she was on Zoom in her office up in the Hudson Valley. And there was this one moment that has stayed with me since that conversation. It's the way Amber explained why it's important for her and other donor-conceived people to have a full picture of where they come from. That picture includes the complexities of our parents, both biological or, in her case, not. She said to me that having the horizon be clear, having everything in plain sight, simply fills this deeply human need. It's funny, I'm not a religious person, obviously, but, you know, in the Bible, there's the commandment that's like, you must honor your mother and father. And some different translations are like, instead of honor, the actual word is understand. A lot of people, as they get older, you want to understand your parents. No matter what your relationship was with them, you want to understand them because there's granules of truth and understanding about yourself 
through understanding your parents' life, your parents' childhood, your parents' struggles and challenges, their personalities, their quirks, you know, how they show up to conflict, how they show up to emotional moments. There's so much to unpack. You know, they've lived a whole life before you. And I think there's a lot to, as you get older, to really unpack about yourself by understanding more about your parents. A few things have become clear, to me at least, in reporting on the fertility industry over the last couple of years, in reporting on Amber's story so intimately. I've wondered if openness could be an opportunity for the baby business, if a new model could benefit everyone, parents, donors, and the human beings created by the system. Honesty has a way of protecting everyone's interests. It can empower donors to know what they may face in the future. It can empower recipients to talk openly with their children and live and parent as their authentic selves. And it can empower donor-conceived people to walk through the world with a better understanding of their own story. As for the industry, this could be a moment to really lean in to changing ideas about family and changing realities surrounding technology. After all, in the age of DNA testing, not many things stay buried forever. That's it for season one of Biohacked. Keep following our feed because we'll be back with a brand new show before you know it. Thanks for listening. Biohacked Family Secrets is produced by 3 Uncanny 4 and Sony Music Entertainment. I'm your host, TJ Raphael. Our program is edited by Maureen McMurray. Our producers are Nick Mott, Jennifer Siegel, Shane McKeon, Krista Ripple, and Mara Silvers. Jenny Kim is our production manager, and Alicia Baitup composed the theme. Our fact checkers are Will Tavlin and Ava Ahmed Behi. This episode was mixed by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. Special thanks to Laura Mayer, Nuna Sharafadine, Amy Eason, Jennifer Womack, and Allison Sherry. Have a question or comment about this week's show? Send me a tweet at TJ Raphael or email us at biohacked at 3uncanny4.com. For 3uncanny4 and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm TJ Raphael.